Hi, I'm Mackenzie Fagan, and this is 112BK, coming to you from downtown Brooklyn. On the show today, we try to find the beauty in cultural appropriation with Refinery29's Connie Wang. This kind of uh, simplification of what cultural appropriation is and the harm that it actually does has, has made people kind of feel wary about engaging with other cultures. Project yourself, if you will, back to the late 90s. I was in junior high, and for a very important school dance, I demanded I be able to wear one of my grandmother's silk chipaos. If you don't know, those are the Chinese dresses with the frog fasteners that you have to be poured into. My mother was confused, but also pleased. I had never shown interest in broadcasting cultural pride through fashion before. In fact, during my youth, I leaned pretty heavily into my white side thanks to some internalized racism that is a story for another time. Anyway, little did my mom know that I gave zero fucks about wearing a chipao to honor my ancestors. I was suddenly interested in traditional Chinese fashion because YM Magazine, no doubt, had a spread on how chipaos were in, complete with photos of Kate Moss, Gwyneth Paltrow, and the entire cast of Buffy in Chinese dress. It took a bunch of blonde white ladies to make me think the traditional fashion of my own culture was worth celebrating. I won't even get started on the Gwen Stefani-fueled bindi craze that was transpiring contemporaneously. I see you, South Asian friends. All this is to say that cultural appropriation in fashion is as old as time, or at least the late 90s. Maybe it's just that you're hearing more about it these days because we're thinking more deeply as a society about structures of power, privilege, and economic opportunity. Take, for example, Marc Jacobs sending Kylie Jenner and the more couture Hadid sister down the runway in dreads a couple of years ago. Or Gucci catching heat for marketing a Sikh turban as a cool fashion accessory. All this came to a head last week when the cultural minister of Mexico called out Carolina Herrera's fashion house for appropriating indigenous embroidery techniques and patterns for its 2020 resort collection. Who's right? Who's wrong? I bought this shirt in Japan. Am I canceled? Help! Here to help us make sense of it all is Connie Wang, senior features writer for Refinery29. Welcome, Connie. So good to be here. So tell us a little bit about this current Carolina Herrera Michigas. What happened? What do these garments look like? So uh, for her resort collection, she referenced a wide variety of different um, locations and um, in a very, very general sense. But she was inspired by... Latin American countries. Right, very broadly, so right? So I can't even describe it even more like specific than that, but Latin American countries, she said, through her travels and her visits through the region, right? And she's Venezuelan herself, so she is a Latina. But her um, creative director currently, I think Wes is, Gordon, yes, yeah. he's not. Right. Completely not. White, white guy? He's a white guy. Okay, yes, great. He's a white guy, a very talented designer, but he's a white guy, and he's in charge of the designs, but it is under her name, so she gives her blessings. Um the, the problem was the designs and the references themselves were incredibly specific. In fact, one of the ones that the, the Mexican government uh, referenced comes from the very southern part of Mexico. It's a community that's within the isthmus. And the, the craft that they do is exactly the craft that was represented in the resort collection. And, and these so, are those sort of like beautiful, painstaking, em embroidered, embroidered birds, flowers, flowers yeah. that type of thing, right? Yeah. So the, in, the, in traditional designs, um, you see them in more boxy cuts. Uh, they, they're on blouses and dresses and things. But what um, Wes Gordon at Carolina Herrera does, he reimagined them on really form-fitting uh, dresses and gowns. There are updates and modernized versions of using traditional handicrafts, but what he didn't do was actually give them a hat tip. He didn't actually reference the exact um, communities. Uh, he didn't even say where they really came from. It could have been, you know, 
anywhere. Right, this collection sort of um, references Tulum and Peru mm-hmm. and Cartagena and all of these sort of like pan Latin regions and countries and cities, right? Exactly, yeah. And so I think that the, a lot of the anger and sort of um, dismissal came from the fact that, you know, they're using specific things that have roots and origins and not a lot of context, but they're brushing it over in this very general sense. It's like saying your uh, Chinese chi pao was an Asian dress, right? Right, right. What does that mean, an Asian dress? Sure. So, I mean, this happens all the time, right? Like, I mean, now that you've got, I mean, a resort collection, I don't know how many collections designers put out now, four, four a year? Four a year. Four a year. So they're constantly looking for inspiration, and a lot of that comes from other cultures. Mm-hmm. So... Do you think that there would have been as much of an uproar if, say, for example, they had said where this embroidery comes from or if they had employed seamstresses from the Isthmus of Tehuantepec? Well, I think that there's a a, a couple of things that they could have done to sort of um, protect themselves against this backlash. One is to be specific in the references. If they actually found these designs in a very specific place, they should should reference it. Otherwise, that's plagiarism, right? Um, Two, they can employ um, the local seamstresses, but understanding how quickly these collections are designed and made, um, how quickly they need to come out, and the, the access they have to their own factories and workers, what they could have done is licensed um, the designs, which is a really typical thing that people do. You don't see designers just putting on Disney princesses on their clothes and not paying Disney some sort of licensing fee. They could have done something like that. Um, they could have uh, paid these communities, you know, for um, just for their ideas, you know, and their inspiration. But it's not against the law to do this designs and cultural products are not actually protected by intellectual property. Um, there are very uh, there are communities within the United States where um, it is codified that you do have to pay a licensing fee. You're not a, they are trademarked. But when you go from different countries to different countries, it's it's the Wild West out there. Yeah, that's super interesting because, you know, applying terms like intellectual property or plagiarism or licensing fee to to cultural products, I yeah. guess, is 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 new. Right. Mm-hmm. I think that like you think back to Yves Saint Laurent um, and his collections in the late 60s where he went to Morocco and was very inspired by Morocco. And all of a sudden, white ladies in America and Europe were wearing caftans everywhere. Do you see this as sort of the same thing? And why are we having more conversations about who gets to make money off of other people's culture and fashion right now? Exactly. I do see it as exactly the same thing. One of the greatest things, though, about the generation we live in is that even though we're very far away from different cultures, we can be really, really connected to them because of the internet, um, because of the ease of travel, um, because that our communities are mixing physically too. There's a, the immigration patterns around the world are a lot more fluid than they've ever been before. Um, and so when that happens, it's not like you're doing, um, it's not like you're appropriating within a bubble anymore. You know, if you're wearing something uh, that would be offensive to another community and they never see you wear it, does that count? You know, if a tree falls in a forest and no one's there to hear them, like, does it count? Right. But here with social media, it's like if you get a photo taken, of course it counts. That person is going to be is going to be seeing and reckoning with, and you just have to think that you are, even though your immediate community might not care, uh, the internet will care. It seems like we're having this conversation really quickly, though, right? Like just four years ago, the Met Gala theme was China, which was basically a celebration of Western appropriation of Chinese fashion. And that was just 2015. So 
all of a sudden, it sounds like in the last few seasons, um, people are talking about this more and more. And you wrote an article uh, for the New York Times, an op-ed recently, Mm -hmm. where you talk about finding the beauty in cultural appropriation. Can you talk a little bit about the impetus for that article? Sure. Um, I've been writing about cultural appropriation for 10, 11, 12 years, Isn't maybe? Isn't it fun that we got oh, to keep on yes. having the conversation? <laughs> <laughs> well, and that was part of it. I was have, I was writing the same article over and over and over, um, use, applying the same rubric of what I found to be bad cultural appropriation to instances of cultural appropriation. And the rubric really consisted of a few things. One is how the imbalance of power. Is it someone with a lot of power taking from someone with very little power? Um, was it authentic? You know, are they doing it in a way where it is? it actually honors the original tradition? or if it's just a complete dismissal of and they're only taking little elements and misidentifying and misnaming it, whatever. Cherry-picking the most attractive facets. Exactly. Uh, there's respect, the matter of respect. Are they doing it in a respectful way or are they doing it in a dis- dismissal way or uh, in a way that's supposed to humiliate or feel a little bit cruel, um, along with a litany of other things. Um, but as I did more stories and saw more instances of cultures borrowing symbols and traditions from other cultures, I found that you know, sometimes it felt legitimate and right and good, and it didn't apply to any of those rubrics um, that uh, that I had been applying to these instances. And it caused me to think about, you know, the way that we think about cultural appropriation and the way that we talk about and identify it, and if it has actually made it us less likely to engage with other cultures. I'll give you an example. So when I was in Jamaica, um, doing a story about dance hall and the women who practice dance hall. And uh, there's a very specific look and it's aesthetic um, with, with dance hall. And it's attracted an international sort of fan base. And so at these dance hall parties, you're seeing women not only from Jamaica and Kingston, but from Japan, from Russia, from Sweden, from Canada, from the United States. And they're there and they're doing it authentically. They're buying the clothes. They're they're taking classes for from Jamaican women. They're um, getting their hair done in Jamaican hair salons. They're spending money in these hair salons. But there are a bunch of white and Asian women wearing cornrows and braids and locks. And I was so caught off guard. And I was, I was talking to these women. I'm like, do you, does this rub you the wrong way? How do you feel about this? I'm like, it's just like because Jamaica also has systems of oppression um, and anti-blackness that you know we share in America. And they looked at me kind of quizzically, and they're like, uh-oh, no, no, no. Like, it doesn't bother us. Like, you're bringing your American sort of sensitivities to our country, and it doesn't bother us because, number one, we don't get discriminated against because of our hair. You know, if we're wearing sure. braids to work, no one's going to say that you don't look professional. They're like, that's a thing that you have to fix in America. And two, the women who are coming are spending money with us, right? They're they're actually giving money back and they're um, benefiting their community. And they're like, what's wrong with that? If they didn't come, they didn't participate, we're at a loss. And I was like, yeah. Sure. Meanwhile, I'm flashing back to, you know, my peer in seventh grade who got back from a carnival cruise to the Caribbean yeah. with her parents and, you know, had cornrows and it mm-hmm. felt wildly inappropriate, but absolutely in a different context. Um, I mean, I guess what matters is the people from the culture that is being appropriated, whether or not they feel respected and that it has some sort of um, gain for them, right? Exactly. But oftentimes the, the biggest just detractors or the critics have are not from that original mm-hmm. community. You know, your friend who got cornrows after a carnival trip, like, comes back to the United States and, you know, who's going to get mad at her there? Like, it's not the, 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 the like, indigenous communities from the Caribbean. You know what right. I mean? 
this kind of uh, simplification of what cultural appropriation is and the harm that it actually does has has made people kind of feel wary about engaging with other cultures. And one of the really awful unintended consequences of the way that we talk about things, I think, as applied to this Carolina Herrera case, is that when tourists actually do go and visit that region and they do want to immerse themselves in the culture, they might not purchase those traditional handicrafts and items because they're afraid of bringing it back and looking like they're culturally appropriating, which that's not the point, right? If they're going to make money from their from their crafts and their products, you know, that's how they're, do- they're doing it. So they're getting hurt from both sides. Another thing in your article that I thought was really interesting was what happens when you remove white people from the conversation entirely, a thing that I love to do. Mm-hmm. Um, you talk about chola culture in Japan, or you talk about um, Afropunk in the US, where you have African Americans who are mashing up different styles from the entire continent of Africa mm-hmm. in a way that um, sort of pays respectful homage to the fact that a lot of people, a lot of African-Americans don't know where they're from Mm -hmm. in Africa, but that to some people in Africa could feel disrespectful. Um, Talk a little bit about that, about these sort of like uh, minority groups appropriating culture from other minority groups. Yeah. So the the, the complicated thing when you think about minority groups appropriating from one another is that there's not a really easy line to draw between one group oppressing another group or which group has less power than another one. It's like it, it to, to try to do that is unproductive, I think. And so when when you use the traditional ways to think about cultural appropriation with when it comes to these instances, it all kind of breaks apart. You're like, well, I guess it's just bad. No one should do this, right? But sometimes I think that these, these um, minority groups come from different communities and countries, right? And there's very little real impact, both economically and culturally, uh, or, or sorry, sharing that goes on between these, these two communities. And so when one community uses references from another one to benefit their own thing, I always go back to the message, like, why are they doing this? What are they saying with this appropriation? And sometimes what they're saying is really crucial. It's really powerful. It's really empowering. And if there is some harm being done, you kind of have to outweigh, like, yeah, is this harm worth it? If Is this harm not not worth it? And also, are they doing it in a, in a new way? Are they doing it in a... Um, and in the way that acknowledges that they're not replacing anything, right? And I think that's 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 the point about cultural appropriation that people get really um, angry about. You know, um, are you saying that this new appropriation replaces the old stuff? You're like, I'm doing it first. I'm right. doing it best, and it's I'm better. Doing better, exactly. Um, and they're not saying that, and I think that that's an important key too. So, you know, cultural appropriation touches so many facets of culture, and I write about it in terms of food a lot. So I wrote about Lucky Lee's recently, uh, which is the the quote-unquote, like, healthy, clean Chinese restaurant that Mm -hmm. is run by a white lady. Um, And I actually had lunch with her last week. Yeah, she invited me to come to Lucky Lee's, and, you know, in the spirit of, uh, you know, person, human-to-human exchange, we chatted and had a really good conversation. And she said one thing that at first made me feel prickly on the back of my neck Mm -hmm. because I wanted to push back against it. And she was like, you know, it's hard to know what's going to upset people these days. Mm -hmm. Like everyone's getting upset over everything. And, you know, what I heard, the code of that was like, we live in an overly PC society and we're walking on eggshells. So I pushed back a little bit on that. And I was like, well, you know, you really just have to listen to people from the impacted communities. But then when I thought about it more, I mean, I understand that sentiment. And in context of fashion, 
a couple different examples came up for me as instances where I didn't know how to feel. So maybe you can tell me how I'm supposed to feel, or at least how I'm supposed to think about it, right? (laughs) One was Kylie Jenner had, Kendall Jenner, one of the Jenners, had, it was like a Vogue photo shoot, and she had her hair teased up in a style that some people were calling an Afro, Mm -hmm. and were saying that this is disrespectful and this is appropriation. And then other people, um, and I'm saying, you know, members of the black community on both sides, were saying that's not an Afro. If you think that's an Afro, you're crazy. That's actually a reference to the Gibson girl style Mm -hmm. uh, of the early 20th century. I sort of feel like, I guess I'll just stay out of it and somebody can tell me how I'm supposed to feel about it. Mm -hmm. I don't know. What do you what do you think? Well, I think that like feeling some way about it is different than like saying it should it's justified and should exist or shouldn't exist. I think that most of these examples of cultural appropriation exist in this gray zone where I'm never of the mentality that like this is well, they're with a caveat, sometimes it's really, really egregious and it's really cruel and really bad. Um, And the intent is to hurt other people. And I think that those instances, yeah, just don't be a, don't be an asshole. Can I say that? You can say that loud and proud. (laughs) Do not be an asshole. Um, But with, with these examples, I think that the problem was that when you're presenting your product, you have no story behind it, right? If you have an image of whatever Jenner was wearing, the uh, the hairstyle, there's no story behind it. Did, did they say it was a Gibson hairstyle? Did they say it was an Afro? Um, did they, what, what are the what are the contexts around that image? Um, but if they're just presenting it with zero, zero context, and they're asking people to just accept it carte blanche, I think that like, it's, of course, people are going to want to know like, what happened here? Especially with the Jenners who have a big history of appropriating in real kind of thoughtless ways. Um, I think I, it's so understandable that people would think that jump to the, the, the bad conclusion, that they were doing something that was uh, purposefully uh, ignorant, right? And so, you know, I, I understand why people would be uh, upset with her. But whether I think it's intentional or not, it doesn't matter. It's a little bit beside the point. It's beside the point. Just like when you're making a product, stand behind it. Like, do you really like this thing? And is, is there a reason that this exists in the world? And I think that a lot of creators don't 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 think about that these days. Well, again, it's the churn of four collections a year and mm-hmm. trying to stay relevant and contemporary. Exactly. I mean, I wonder if that's why all of these instances of racism and appropriation and fashion keep on popping up. I mean, you know, there was the, you know, the Gucci turtlenecks and all those blackface instances, but there was also the Burberry noose and the Dolce & Gabbana comments about China. Mm -hmm. Um, Is it just that fashion is under more scrutiny? Or do you think as an industry, it's like worse in some ways than other industries? Uh, Wow, that's a can of worms. Um, (laughs) But thank you for asking that question. It's something I thought about a lot. I think that the nature of how you create fashion and sell fashion makes appropriation, the bad kind, really, really easy to do. Um, To create four collections a year means that you have to squash the creative processes to create 100 items, right, for every collection. Maybe there's 100 items. Um, You have to make that within a month. And you don't have to just design those things, but you also have to figure out how to produce these things, how many of these things you should buy. So it is a crazy, crazy churn that doesn't leave a lot of room for deep research, right? And and with fashion, the reputation is that, or the stereotype rather, is that it's superficial. And so to try to do new things and try to do exciting new things, sometimes the easiest thing to do is say, say go looking out into the world and be like, oh, these people look good doing this thing that they've already been doing. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna dip into that a little bit, spin it in my own way, and then resell it. But 
for the same reasons that I don't think that big companies or big corporations um, can earnestly say that they're anti-establishment or political or have these really deep sort of like uh, provocative messages. I also don't think that big brands and corporations can honestly say like, I'm just inspired by different communities. This is art because they exist because they make money. They exist because they make a lot of money. Um, and when you add that profit element into it, it really, um, I think you can't say in earnest that you're just just truly inspired by the beauty. Right, yeah. right. The value isn't the beauty. The value right. is that that beauty sells. I want to come back to this idea of like the humble consumer yeah. and perhaps somebody who enjoys traveling, somebody who perhaps is themselves a fusion of cultures. Mm -hmm. How are we, how do we be? What is our moral compass? I think a lot of people are, are trying to figure out how can I exist as a progressive person, as an ally in this world, yeah. um, you know, while also celebrating cultures that I find to be beautiful. Exactly. Like I went on an Airbnb trip recently. Uh -huh. um, it was my girlfriend's birthday. We're going to go glamping. I found this great place. And I was like, oh, God, it's not a tent. It's a teepee. <laughs> okay. And, yeah. you know, the, there was a pond and it looked really beautiful. There was a dream catcher in the teepee. Mm -hmm. And I was like, it, can I conscionably glamp in a teepee? And so I, I messaged the, the Airbnb host. And I was like, hey, like, I hope you don't take this the wrong way. I just want to dialogue about what your relationship to indigenous and native communities is. Yeah. And he got back to me and he's like, you know, I, I am a white guy, but I'm from South Dakota. And he did like a little bit of like, I have a black friend. But, you know, he was like, uh -huh. many of my friends are uh, from the Lakota community. And, you know, one of my closest friends is like a, a medicine man and invited me to a, a, a Sundance. And mm -hmm. that was among the most meaningful experiences of my life. Yeah. So I sort of made the decision for myself. I was like, I feel like there is enough of a connection here that he is trying to bring an authentic culture that he has some meaningful connection to to mm -hmm. other people but i but i know other people would have been like don't do it like yeah. he's not lakota and you are not enriching a, a member of the lakota community by mm -hmm. staying in this teepee yeah um Thank you for asking this question, because I think that there's a huge difference between individual responsibility when it comes to cultural appropriation and company responsibility um, when it comes to what I like to think of it as cultural plagiarism, mm -hmm. right, where mm -hmm. you're profiting and stealing someone, other, someone else's work and passing it off as your own. For the individual, though, I think that if your gut instinct to that, that whatever draws you to appropriate or to engage with another culture, if that also leads you to engage with the people, not just the ideas and the aesthetics, but also the people in the community and the, the things that make this community um, great and glorious, but also the challenges and the, the, the bad stuff um, with this community, I think then go ahead do it. But it gets a little bit uh, tricky when you're not also providing that context um, for when you're doing. Are you only doing it to perform that you are cultured and worldly um, without actually saying anything about the culture in the world when you're doing it? Um, so if your Instagram store is in this Airbnb trip and saying nothing about the teepee in the background, the, the dream catcher in the background, um, and just being like, I'm so boho right now. <laughs> right. Right. That's one thing. Sure. But the fact that you had a conversation with this guy, you know, you learned about the indigenous groups in South Dakota. I imagine that's where you were going. Um, oh, this was upstate New York. Upstate New York. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You know, Which was, again, another added layer of like, you yeah. know, this is somebody from South Dakota bringing something that is very specific to that region of the yeah. country to upstate New York. Mm -hmm. but. but for him, I feel he's not only in, he didn't buy a dream catcher in a teepee because he liked the look. 
Right. Right. He didn't buy it from Urban Outfitters. Exactly. And he the 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 the, the money went to the actual community. He knows people. He is actually dialoguing with those communities himself. And for that reason, I feel like it's so legitimate. You know, of course, you want to you want to keep those experiences and memories and um, relationships near to you. And that's what that's why we buy stuff. Right. That's why we have stuff. That's why we fill our homes up with things, because that they every single thing has a memory attached to it. And so when you're traveling, you know, buy souvenirs that actually mean something to you. You know, buy souvenirs from people that um, you admire and you had conversations with. You know, don't just go to the, the airport gift shop and buy like the plastic version of the, the expensive thing that you saw. Right. You know, just to say that you've been there, but you know nothing about why it was created. Right. So I just think that like, please, please appropriate, but appropriate as a first step, knowing that you will do two, three, four, and five, you know, because if you're only engaging with another culture with just like the fun stuff and like the pretty stuff, um, that's not quite far enough. Right. I mean, to say that we should not culturally appropriate is just, I mean, it's absurd. It it is, Mm -hmm. it is the way that the world that we live in today has been shaped by the melding of cultures, by the intersections of people moving throughout the globe. But I think that you're right that there is a way to do it respectfully Mm -hmm. and thoughtfully and a way to do it recklessly and harmfully. Yeah. Um, I want to come back to this idea that you mentioned uh, about how some cultural products or designs have been trademarked or registered in some way, mm-hmm. um, because it occurs to me that in the food world, Italy and France do a really great job of saying, like, this is DOC. Nobody can make Parmesan you yeah. know, unless you are here, or Champagne unless you are in Champagne. Mm-hmm. Um, are there countries that are sort of on the forefront of saying this is part of our cultural hegemony and nobody else can touch it unless you follow these steps? So um, the United States actually uh, has a, I forget the exact term for it, but it's I think it's a Native Arts and Crafts Act, which protects indigenous communities uh, they're, they're handicrafts. And so you can't use the word Navajo to describe things. And Urban Outfitters got in trouble yes, with that. Yes, they did uh, a flask, right? They did fla- which is a flask. extremely problematic on several levels. Yeah, yeah. underwear, uh, I think home decor, tiny teepees for your like dogs and stuff. And they would call these things Navajo um, as just, and then they said that the word Navajo be, has become an adjective now. It's not actually um, a, a community. It's, it's meaningless. Just, it's, it's, not not a, it's not a group of people. <laughs> exactly. So there is an actual act, though, that where they trademarked their name and their products and saying that like if you're not if you're selling a product that wasn't actually made by our community you cannot do that and so they won in in Kenya the Maasai tribe which is one of the you know most internationally recognized communities indigenous communities um have a really, really I- evocative, identifiable like uh, design traditions, right? Mm-hmm. That red and blue big check, right? The the necklaces, um, the beaded necklaces and things. Um, there's over a thousand fashion brands that exist that use Maasai iconography, and uh, I think a research company actually said that it's in it's an aesthetic that's worth ten million dollars a year. Wow. Yep. And that tribe has seen zero dollars from that, you know. And so if there were legal avenues that they could access to say that, hey, like, you know, we actually, you need to license that. If you're going to reference it, you're going to have to license it. I think that is one one of the ways uh, that we could fix part of this problem. And I think what the Mexican government did with Carolina Herrera is um, is sort of signal, signaling that they're about to do some of those things and about to put some protections in because a few weeks prior to them writing the letter to Wes Gordon and Carolina Herrera, uh, the 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 I think the government had said that they were going to identify um, certain laws and protections that to protect their own indigenous communities when it comes to cultural plagiarism. And I think they definitely use the word plagiarism, um, which I found 
to be good. I'll close out with a final question. Since I have you here, yeah. I'm going to a Russian Jewish LA wedding in Baja this weekend. Fantastic. What should I wear? What should you wear? What should I not wear? I don't know. What should I wear? You should wear something that's going to keep you cool. It's going to be very, very hot there. Um, I don't know. Wear something you can talk about. I always love wearing something that comes from my travels, right? Um, comes from a different culture, maybe. Um, but something that has a story. If someone's like, um, if, if you were wearing a chipao in, in, in high school, right, and someone came up to you and like, I love your Asian dress, you can be like, actually... I love this dress, too. Yes, it was my grandmother's. I'm the yes. same size as she is as an 11-year-old. It's a full-grown Chinese woman. Amazing. Yes, but you have a story to tell them, and that like deepens the connection, right? If you were just like, oh, yeah, I got this on Delia's or something, you know, like that would be a completely different thing. But I love wearing things to weddings that leads to a nice, nice conversation. Well, I wish that I still had my grandmother's <laughs> chi-pao slash still fit into it, because um, I would wear that this weekend. Yeah. Connie, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. And that is the show for today. If you liked what you heard, the best way to show it is to put that bindi down. Or you could review 112BK on iTunes. And please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time. 112BK is hosted by me, Mackenzie Fagan. It is series produced by Ross Tuttle, also produced by Fred Brown, Shereen Bargi, Isabel Alcantara, Naeem Van, and Emily Bogosian. It is recorded in studio by Clinton Filson Jr., Eric Hogseg, and Antonio M. Rosario. It is post-produced by Alexander Pointzolo, edited by Mira Al-Rahim, and executive produced by Jonathan Leaf, Sasha Mathias, and Aziz Aisham. 